going to continue in in our series through the life of Joseph, uh, Foundation Baptist Church. Uh, obviously, this is your first night being here, so we've been progressing through the life of Joseph, and we've entitled this series, A Story of God's Sovereignty, and we've been looking over the control and the sovereignty of God through the progression of Joseph and his life, and uh, we're on uh, sermon number 11 tonight, and as you turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter number 42, we're going to cover uh, chapter 42, verse 1 through 25, and we'll come back next week and cover the rest of it. And as you turn there, how many of you heard me say last week that it is my, uh, it is my New Year's resolution to gain weight? That's my, that's my New Year's resolution. Well, I have an update about that. Uh, I've been eating Chick-fil-A every single day. I've been, I mean, serious, amen. I've been consuming, and um, right before church started, I dropped my keys. For the first time in my life, I bent down, and my pants ripped. And I rejoice. It's these pants I'm wearing right now. So thankfully, you can't see anything. I won't give you a show tonight. But uh, just wonder, how are you doing on your New Year's resolution, okay? It's week number two, and I've already gained enough weight to rip my pants. That's never happened and probably never will happen again in my life. So Genesis chapter number 42. Again, we're going to read the first. We're actually not going to read the entire section that we're going to go over tonight. I don't want to labor too long. Brother Matt's going to be baptizing afterwards, and so I don't want to go too long. But let's read the first six verses, and then we'll read 21 through 25, or excuse me, 24. Look at verse number one. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph, excuse me, and Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Sound familiar? Let's skip down to verse number 21. It says, And they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brother, In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again, and communed with them, and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Tonight for just a moment in light of our series through the life of Joseph and this text I'd like to talk to you about this subject coming to the end of self. Coming to the end of self. Let's uh, go to Lord in prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father I thank you so much for tonight and allowing us the opportunity to host Foundation Baptist Church. What a blessing it is to see uh, our handiwork and, and our, our, uh, our footprints or excuse me our fingerprints there in Foundation and Sammamish and the difference they've been making for the past 11 years. Pray that you continue to bless. Lord uh, they've got a convert tonight that are going to be baptizing, t- baptizing. We're thankful for that. Lord I pray for tonight as we go over this uh, beginning section of chapter number 42 already you've spoken to me in a very serious way this week and you've dealt with me about that subject, coming to the end of self, and you desire to use everybody in this room, me included, but you cannot do that unless we are yielded to you and submitted to your plan and your will. I pray that you'd help us as we progress through this series, uh, or excuse me, this lesson tonight. It would add to the series and that, uh, Lord, you would bring us to a point of decision, not just convince us of something that we can know, but uh, convince us of something that we can act upon tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for reading with me. Well, uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, I got uh, several people that have never been here before. If you, don't, if you do know who I am, just tune out. It's fine. You do that anyways when I preach, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm Lamar Ard, and uh, I've been on staff here for about four years, and uh, before I was on staff here, my wife and I, we've been married for five years, and we lived in Oklahoma City, and uh, I just got to say this about Oklahoma. Uh, plug your ears, Miss Amy and the Chuck Snyders. Oklahoma is the worst state in the world. It's, I'm serious. It's terrible. If you've lived there, if you ever visited there, you'll understand what I'm saying. Oklahoma is terrible. I could literally preach just a message on why Oklahoma is the worst state. But I'll just start with the weather. The weather is terrible. What's that? You just lost four choir members. Okay, I take it back. I ignore what I just said. No, seriously, Oklahoma, the weather, if you've not lived there, I think if you have lived there, you'll agree. The weather is sometimes unpredictable. You've got tornadoes all the time. You've got uh, tornadoes, you've got, uh, here's the problem that I have. I don't like cold, 
And uh, so Oklahoma, it gets so cold that it won't snow, it'll just get icy. So it's not like, oh, it's beautiful, it begins to snow and you get like this velvet. No, it just freezes over. And then you've got maniacs on the road that can't drive and so forth. And so those of you who've been to Oklahoma or lived in Oklahoma know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I was working, I was a store manager at Starbucks, and I worked at the Starbucks in Penn Square Mall, and my wife worked at a restaurant in the same parking lot. And so we had opportunity to drive to work with one another. We tried to uh, mesh our schedules where we would uh, be at work at the same time and leave work at the same time. And uh, there was one winter night that I got off, and uh, the mall is beginning to close, and I'm sitting and I'm waiting on Rebecca, and I'm sitting out in front of the mall. And the, um, uh, the uh, security guards begin to escort everybody out, and they're walking out. And it was so cold, it was, it was beginning to sleet, and there was already a layer of ice on the uh, parking lot. And the people that were coming out of the mall, they were coming out one by one, and one guy comes out. They didn't see the ice. And as soon as the guy stepped off of the ledge, he stepped onto the ice, and he fell. And I, I laughed. I just did. It was hilarious. I was sitting in my truck, and I was watching. And uh, he got up, and he looked around, didn't see that I saw him, walked about his business. <laughs> the next guy came in just a few moments later. Same thing happened. I watched him come out, steps on the ice, and he slips. And I'm like, oh, man, this is great. Then I saw a familiar face. I saw my wife coming out of the mall. Now, the good husband inside of me was going to tell her, sweetie, you need to be careful because um, there's, uh, there's slick ice right in front of you. You don't want to fall. But the good husband inside of me was not there. He was at home. And so I just watched her. She came out. And man, it was great. It was the best. Out of all the ones that I saw, it was the greatest <laughs> fall. Her feet went straight up into the air and she fell. And uh, she hit the ground real hard. It was great. It was wonderful. And uh, she came around and I'm laughing hysterically, punches me in the arm. But this is why me and my wife, uh, I love my wife, is because instead of going home and going to bed and, and, and enjoying our evening, we're like, hey, let's stay and let's watch. <laughs> and so people would come out, and then it was great. I had a great time sitting there watching people come out, and they would just fall, and we'd laugh, and it, every time it just seemed to get more and more funny, and we'd begin to like, oh, this guy's really watch. Okay, and he'd come out, and I called it. There he goes, boom, told you so. And then another guy would come out, and this continued on for several minutes, and we went home. Had a lot of fun that night and uh, at someone else's expense, so... I share that um, as we look at the life of Joseph, <laughs> let's get serious now, as we look at the life of Joseph, when I think of the life of Joseph up till this point, and now we see what has taken place in the life of Joseph, I think of that term that I just mentioned, told you so, think about it, I told you so, or, or we could say it this way, um, called it. <laughs> When we began our studies in Genesis chapter number 37, we looked at the life of Joseph, and uh, we started with a 17-year-old boy who was given some visions by God, and God began to display his desire and his will for Joseph's life in the form of these two visions that he gave him, and uh, as he began to explain in those visions what was to take place, here was the position that he wanted, or here's what he wanted to take place in the life of Joseph. He wanted to rise him to a position of prominence and authority. And as we progressed through the life of Joseph, although at times it seemed like God was not in control... Now we get to Genesis chapter number 42, and you know what? I told you so. I called it exactly like I said it has come to pass, but in reality, we've learned Joseph didn't call it. God did, right? It was God. He told Pharaoh, he told Potiphar, or excuse me, not Potiphar, but he told the uh, baker and the butler. He said, I'm not able to interpret dreams, but I know of someone who can, and he gives the glory to God, and so God calls it exactly as God predicts it takes place. And we know the story of Joseph. Again, we've talked about that. So it's unfair sometimes of us to progress through Scripture and not give into full account the glory, the sovereignty, and the attributes of God because we know the end of the story. But just imagine with me, if you're reading your Bible for the first time and you get to this point, how surprised you would be that, that God did exactly as he said he would do. Sometimes it surprises us, doesn't it? When God tells us that he's going to accomplish his will in a, in a particular way, we act completely surprised when he does exactly that. My son, he'll be two years old in just a couple of weeks. I can't even believe it. I feel like we just brought him home from the hospital. He'll be two in just a couple of weeks. And uh, my son is the most gullible person on the face of the planet. And that's partially because he's half Farinella, but that's also because he's just two years old. So, I mean, he believes everything. And uh, whenever he's winding down and we'll, we'll put him to bed at night, I'll play this little game. You know the game. It's called hide and seek. How many of you have played hide, hide, hide and seek with your children? So here's the thing. I always hide in the same place. I always hide the exact same place. I hide behind the bed. And get this. He knows exactly where I'm hiding. He knows that I'm always going to be right there around the corner behind the bed. But we repeat this over and over and over and over again. And you know what his expression is every single time that I'm hiding where I, he knows that I'm hiding? Oh! And he gets excited and he can't even believe, oh my goodness, dad's right there. I mean, hello, I've, I've hid there 30 times in a row. What makes you think I'm going to hide somewhere different the 31st time? But yet, every single time we play hide and seek, my son comes in and he acts completely surprised 
that I'm exactly where I've always been. When it comes to the things of God, isn't it funny that we act surprised when God does exactly what he says he's going to do? When God accomplishes his will and he shows and he gives us those revelations and he says, I'm going to work in you in this way, we get to the end of it and we act completely surprised. In other words, in regards to the title of our series, we know God's sovereign, but we really don't believe he's sovereign. We understand that God is sovereign, and we say it with our mouths, but when it comes to believing it in our situations, isn't it very difficult and hard to trust God and know that he's in full control? In our study through the life of Joseph, we've been extracting that very truth, the sovereignty of God in in his life, and how God has been in control as we've progressed through all the difficult trials and circumstances that Joseph has faced. And we've seen checkpoints along the way that point to this blessed truth. Even when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And know that God is sovereign and he is in control. Last week we took a break through our progression through the life of Joseph. And we highlighted the typographies that Joseph has with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And isn't it amazing? I mentioned this last week. There are 600 typographies in Joseph's life alone that point him to the coming Messiah in the New Testament. That's why I love going through these Old Testament books because they give us an appetizer for what is to come in the form of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You ought to get excited about that. We progress through the typographies and all the different commonalities that Joseph has with Jesus, and I won't go over every single one. I feel like I've done that every single week. Remember, my wife doesn't like when I repeat myself, Uh, but Joseph faced adversity, didn't he? Joseph faced trial. Joseph experienced the lowest of the low. Last week we learned that there finally came a time in the life of Joseph where it says in Genesis chapter number 41 that his name was exalted above every name. His name was exalted to high esteem in the land of Egypt. And he's made to ride, it says, in the second chariot of, of, of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes him ride in the second chariot. And as they progress through the streets of Egypt, what do the people of Egypt say? Who remembers? Bow the knee. Remember that? Bow the knee. Here comes Joseph. He's second in command in all the land of Egypt. Bow the knee, painting a beautiful picture of our coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. We also learned that like Joseph, Jesus faced adversity. More than Joseph. Jesus faced trial. Jesus experienced the lowest of the low, but aren't you thankful that there's coming a day? There's coming a day when we're going to ascend into heaven and we're going to be in the presence of God the Father and God the Son. And God says that his name is going to be exalted above every single name. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It doesn't matter if you're agnostic, if you're atheist, if you're Christian, if you're Jew, if you're Gentile. There's coming a day, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. We left our time last week together thinking this beautiful thought. Jesus, high and lifted up. Jesus, high and lifted up. But now in our study through the account of Joseph, God changes the emphasis. He's going to change the emphasis. Before, we were looking at it through the lens of Joseph rising to prominence and rising above those circumstances. But now God steers the direction from Joseph to his other brothers and the sons of Jacob. Joseph is 17 years old when they sell Joseph to the Midianites in Genesis 37. And as far as the brothers of Joseph are concerned, out of sight, out of mind. They've disposed of Joseph, and we talked about this in week number two, in a very heinous and a very uh, belligerent way. But nonetheless, Joseph's been sold to the Midianites, and it's been 20 years since they've seen Joseph's face, as far as they're concerned, out of sight, out of mind. I'd have you believe that they probably thought Joseph was dead. They probably thought that the worst had happened to Joseph, and Joseph had probably died. Uh, Hebrew slaves did not have a long shelf life there in Egypt. They were treated very poorly, and so no doubt the thought must have uh, overcome the brothers of Joseph. Surely he's got to be dead at this point. It was very likely that Joseph was no more. There's been a 20-year span between the time that they've either, either seen or heard of Joseph. And in reality, they tried to forget Joseph, but our text tells us, and it insinuates that they couldn't shake the guilt and the shame that they had deep within themselves for what they did to Joseph. Here it is, they felt convicted. For 20 long years, God has been working on the hearts of the sons of Jacob. Remember, we looked at the happenings of Genesis chapter number 37, and we looked at, again, this heinous act that they performed, and we came to this conclusion. It was a result of the condition of their hearts. It was, remember, calloused. The hearts of, brothers Joseph, uh, of Joseph's brothers were calloused, hard-hearted, consumed with self. But as time would progress, God was pulling back the layers of their hard-heartedness and convicting them of their inward selfishness and their pride and their sin. 
Before God could do a work in the, life of, in the lives of Joseph's brothers, by the way, God desired to do a work, and he was going to do a work through the tribes of Israel. We read about the rest of their inhabitations through the rest of the Old Testament. God has a desire and a will for the ten other brothers, but they had to come to the end of self before they could be utilized by God. What's interesting to note in the word of God is that God never uses someone for his glory and for their benefit that is consumed with self. Now, you got to hear what I said. I did not say that God does not use anybody that is consumed with self. He, he uses a lot of people that are consumed with self. But what I said was God does not use anybody for his glory and for their benefit that is consumed with self. I think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, I, I love the verbiage of the, of the King James when it says he takes his inheritance and he goes and he, he spends his inheritance, he wastes it, and then you find him eating the slop of the pigs. And what did the Bible say? It says he came to himself. Jonah. Jonah was definitely used by God. He, he saw one of the biggest revivals of all time. But Jonah, he wanted to do what Jonah wanted to do. And he, wa he was walking in the will of the Father until it required him to do something he didn't want to do. And therefore, jo uh, excuse me, Jonah went the opposite direc direction. He got on a ship and God got his attention through trial and difficulty, right? He sent a storm and Joseph, or excuse me, Jonah is thrown overboard and he goes into the well. We know the story. And although he spent time in the well and he was thinking about those sins, and he came out of it and he was used by God, it wasn't until several, uh, several uh, chapters later that we find that he's discontent with the work of the Father in his life. But God could not have used Jonah in the capacity that he used Jonah if Jonah did not commit to himself, or excuse me, commit himself to the will of the Father. We could go on. Paul, we could talk about Peter, we could talk about the disciples and so forth. The formula for being utilized by God is a number of different things, but it boils down to this, being filled with the Spirit of God. If you want to be utilized by God, if you want your life to be impactful for the cause of Christ, you're going to have to be filled with the Spirit. But catch this, God cannot fill a vessel that is full. Did you hear me? God cannot fill a vessel that is full, it has to be empty. You have to be completely emptied of self in order to be filled with the Spirit. We've learned this, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but God is sovereign, and there are aspects of his sovereignty that we've looked at, but because God is sovereign, God will get his way. We like to think of God's sovereignty as God is always in control, and that is true, but because God is sovereign, he's gonna get his. He's gonna have his way, whether you like it or whether you don't. And we talked about the difference, you remember that when we talked about the difference between being humbled and being humble? When you're humble... When you humble yourself, it is that in and of myself, I am choosing to walk in the will of the Father and allow him to use my life and fill me with his spirit. But oh, there is a difference between being humble and being humbled. Far more controversy, far more pain. God is going to have his way one way or another. You might as well humble yourself before he humbles you. God will, excuse me, God will either fill a vessel that is empty or he will dispose of a vessel that is filled with anything less than his spirit. But it's not all bad. Because we get to choose which it is. We have, we have the opportunity to choose which it is. You can either be humble or you can be humbled, but it's your choice. God will use whatever means necessary to empty us of self. God had big plans, again, for the sons of Jacob, but he can't do what he wants to do until they've come to the end of themselves. And I'd like us to look at that really quickly tonight. They have to come to the end of themselves. In order for God to accomplish his will in the life of Joseph's brothers, they have to empty themselves of themselves. If you're taking notes, a few things I'd like you to notice tonight in light of our text. Number one, write this down. I want you to notice the rendezvous with trouble. The rendezvous with trouble. God is going to use several different, we're going to look at six things tonight. The first one is the rendezvous with trouble. But God's going to use several different things in the life of Jacob's brothers to gain their attention so that he can fill them with his spirit and he can utilize them as he wants to utilize them. In the first four verses of Genesis chapter number 42, we see that God brings the sons of Jacob to this place of humility and repentance through trouble. It's been 20 long years since Joseph departs from the picture. And excluding that brief insight that we looked at in week number four of the life of Judah in Genesis chapter number 38, for the past 20 years in these chapters that we've gone over, we have not heard a peep out of the house of Jacob. We have no idea what's going on in the house of Jacob. Everything seems to be going very well, actually, going hunky-dory. We've dealt with Joseph exactly like we thought he should be dealt with. Everything seems to be going okay. I think maybe we're going to get away with having to suffer the ramifications of what we did to Joseph. But eventually, although it seemed like everything was going just fine, trouble came. Trouble came. Be sure your sin will find you out, right? 
What kind of trouble did they face? A few things quickly. Write these down. Letter A, famine trouble. No, this is very simple. Famine trouble. Genesis 41, we read this last week in verse number 53. And the seven years of plenteous that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come according to Joseph, excuse me, according as Joseph had said, and the dearth was in all the lands. So there's this famine that takes over the land of Canaan. Now, if you study through the word of God, you're going to come across 12 different famines that are recorded, excluding this one that we read about in Genesis chapter number 41. And every time that a famine takes place in the word of God, it is in direct connection to the judgment of God upon his people. And this famine is no different. This famine was divinely orchestrated by God to gain the attentions of the brother, excuse me, gain the attention of the brothers of Jacob as well as the rest of the land of Canaan and Egypt and bring their dependence upon Joseph and the provision that God had provided through Joseph. We talked about that last week, but as they would come to Pharaoh, what did he say? Hey, if you're hungry, get to Joseph. And it painted a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Tonight, if you're spiritually starving, you're spiritually hungry, you can't come to the church, you can't come and you can't be baptized, you're going to have to go to Jesus. Look at verse number one of our text. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, I love this, why do you look one upon another? Spoken like a true father. In other words, he's saying, uh, excuse me, young men, what are you looking at? Is there you know, something on my face? Brother McTernan, you need to get your bowing gloves off and you need to go to work. There's land, or excuse me, there's provisions in the land of Egypt. Look at verse number two. And he said, behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither. And buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. Let me tell you guys, we have a problem at hand. We've got a famine in the land and we're going to die if we don't get these provisions. So I need you to go through and I need you to go over to Egypt and I need you to get the provisions because I hear that there's corn in Egypt. They face this famine problem. Let her be write this down. They face family problems. They had family problems. Yeah, no kidding. We've talked about Jacob a little bit. In week number two, we talked about Jacob in great detail. And if there's one word that I could use to describe Jacob's household, it would be this dysfunctional. Seriously, dysfunctional. Remember we talked about Jacob, or excuse, yeah, Jacob, and as he's going, he, he knew the will of God was to follow his brother Esau to the land of Seir, but what did he do? He goes to Shechem. And that was the downward spiral that began in Joseph's, or excuse me, in Jacob's family. Jacob's family was suffering all sorts of problems as a result of his disobedience to God. Wake up, dads. Wake up, fathers. Your, your, your provision and what, the direction that you're taking your, your family is going to lead to the destruction of your family. But excluding that kind of problem, I want you to look at this. His family problems also involved, uh, excuse me, uh, verse number four, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. You could almost feel the tension in the room. You could almost feel the adversity that Jacob had for his other 10 brothers. The last time I sent you guys away with my youngest son, he didn't come back. And so uh, I don't think I'm going to be sending Benjamin with you. I'm going to keep him here in in the land of Canaan. You guys go on your own. I mean, you kind of get this sense of distrust, this dissatisfaction that Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob has with his other 10 sons. They had a famine problem. They had family problems. This uh, This is the rendezvous with trouble. Number two, write this down. The rendition with Joseph. I want you to notice the rendition with Joseph. Look at verse number five. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn amongst these that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So they depart from Egypt, or excuse me, Canaan, and they go up to Egypt. Go to verse 7. And Joseph saw his brethren. What does it say? And he knew them. And he knew them. I don't have time to develop this thought, but can you put yourself in the position of Joseph? Oh, no, the overwhelming sense of, of emotion that must have overflowed him when he sees the brothers that started this entire downward spiral in his life. Everything that Joseph has experienced in the past 20 years, every bad, difficult trial and circumstance that Joseph has faced is in a very real sense their fault. And now he sees them. So nonetheless, Joseph recognizes them, but notice they don't recognize Joseph. This is important. We're gonna develop this thought next week. They don't recognize Joseph. Look at verse number eight. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. They didn't recognize him one bit. How come they didn't recognize him? Um, 20 years will change you. 20 years is going to transform you. Why didn't they recognize Joseph? Really simply, letter A, I want you to write this down. His acting. His acting. He puts on this show for his brothers. This is a, a display that he puts. He wants to act as Egyptian as possible. They don't suspect that it's Joseph for one second. Here's letter A because of his acting. A few things I want you to notice of his acting. Number one, he changed his appearance. Changed his appearance. Talked about this last week in verse number 14 of Genesis 41. 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. And then we continue to progress. And what, are they, what, is, what does Pharaoh do with Joseph? He takes and he puts on fine linen on Joseph. And he takes and he puts his ring on his finger. And he adorns him with the attire of someone who is a high-authority Egyptian. Remember the last time they saw Joseph? It's been 20, over 20 years. Last time they saw Joseph, he was wearing what? We, we identify Joseph with this term. Joseph and the coat of many colors. And they maliciously stripped Joseph naked, the Bible says. They stripped Joseph naked of that coat of privilege. And they take him and they throw him naked into the pit that has no water. And they take him and they sell him into slavery. So the last time they saw Joseph, they saw the areas of Joseph where the sun don't shine. But now his appearance has totally changed. Now he's looking more Egyptian than he is Hebrew. He looked different because of his appearance, his acting. Uh, number two of his acting, I want you to write this down. I know this is very practical. His age has changed. Wow, yes. His age has changed. He's barely a, he's barely a man. 17 years old when they sell him, into, uh, sell him into slavery in Genesis chapter number 37. It's been over 20 years, and now he's pushing 40. Old, man, you're old. If you're, if you're pushing 40 in here, you are old. You are ancient. I hope that encourages you. Jo- Joseph is old at this point. His appearance has changed. Obviously, his age has changed. Number three, write this down. His announcements have changed. Or his conversation, his communication, his language. Verse 23, and they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. As they speak amongst themselves and they begin to talk amongst themselves about the activities and the events that took place when they were there in Canaan, Joseph heard every single word and Joseph understood what they were saying because he spoke Hebrew. But he played the part, didn't he? He played the part. Uh, no hablo inglés, señor. I have no idea what you're saying. Uh, it, it speaks through an interpreter. But Joseph knew exactly what, it was, what he was saying. He's putting on this show. His appearance has changed. Obviously, his age has changed. His communication or his language and uh, his uh, announcements have changed. Number four, write this down. I love this. His authority has changed. His authority is not the same. This is not the pipsqueak little 17-year-old brother that they threw into the pit. They didn't suspect for a second that this man of high esteem and authority could be their little brother. There's no way. Joseph is constantly talking about these dreams that he has. And and the Bible says in Genesis chapter number 37, it says it on three occasions. They hated him, they hated him more, and they hated him yet the more. There's no possible way that this man standing before us could be Joseph. Because you know what that means? Joseph was right. His appearance has changed. His age has changed. His communication or his language has changed. And most importantly, most of all, his authority has changed drastically. They didn't recognize Joseph. You got to give this man an Oscar because he put on the acting spree of a lifetime. God was going to use this rendition with Joseph to gain their attention, but he can't do that if they know who he is. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. He can't do that, at least not yet. He wants to accomplish something, but it's dependent upon Joseph keeping his position and his self and his person a secret. They didn't recognize Joseph because of his acting. Let her be write this down. They didn't recognize Joseph because of his uh, accusations. These accusations that they brought before, uh, excuse me, that Joseph brought before his brothers, verse number nine. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them and said unto them, ye are spies. Verse 12, and he said unto them, nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. Verse 14, and Joseph said unto them, That it is that I spake unto you, saying, ye are spies. He's giving these accusations, and as I was reading, this, this, uh, the irony of the text actually jumped out at me. Remember when Joseph came from Shechem to Dothan? Dothan, rather. When he came to Shechem, his his father commands him to go check on his brothers. He goes to Shechem. They're not there. They go over to Dothan, and they see him coming from afar off, and what do they do? The Bible says that they conspire against Joseph. They begin to form these untrue untrue accusations against Joseph. And what do they call him? Here comes the dreamer. They begin to mock Joseph. Now we fast forward 20 years and who's got the higher ground now? Who's making the accusations now? The rendezvous with trouble. The rendition with Joseph. Number three, write this down. The removal to prison. The removal to prison, verse number 13 And they said, thy servants are 12 brethren, and the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. They're talking about Jacob there. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, that's Benjamin. Look what they say. And one is not. Who are they talking about? Joseph. 
Now, there's some, there's some controversy in regards to the timeline of, of Benjamin's birth, and I don't want to go into it too much. There's basically two schools of thought. Some people think that uh, Benjamin was born after Joseph was already sold into slavery, which means that in our text, this is the first time that Joseph has ever heard word that he has a younger brother. Now, I don't care what you believe. I personally believe that Joseph knew that he had a brother because in his dreams that he gives in Genesis 37, he references how many stages of wheat? Eleven. And he, re- he references how many stars? Eleven. So that, that, that interpretation would he, wouldn't make sense if Benjamin wasn't there, but I don't care where you fall. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but nonetheless, at this point in our text, Joseph knows that there's an eleventh brother and he's not here. So Joseph doesn't want to raise suspicion by asking certain kinds of questions. He needs to keep his identity a secret. And so he begins to, uh, uh, display, he begins to explain his ex- expectations in regards to this test that he wants to give his brothers. So after this accusation, they begin to try again to defend themselves, and they share their sob story about what took place in the land of Egypt. And Joseph says this, I want some proof. You're talking about this one that's dead, but you're also talking about one that, uh, uh, the youngest brother that's not with you. And Joseph obviously is very concerned. The reason I shared that, I didn't mention this, the reason I shared that about the lineage of Benjamin is because it didn't matter when Benjamin was born. Was Benjamin present, and was he a part of the brothers that caused harm to Joseph? No. Benjamin had nothing to do with it. Benjamin was not one, that was the, one of the ones that went and threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery. Therefore, he instantly felt for Benjamin. So he wants some proof of Benjamin's existence. Look at verse number 14. And Joseph said unto them, That it is that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. Look at verse number 17. I'd like you to show, look at something with me. And he put them all together into what? Ward, three days. Our text does not say this. Our text does not say this, and I don't want to be guilty of reading into Scripture that which is not accurate, but I can just tell you, I'm talking about me, the way that I read my Bible, and I'm skimming through. You know what I thought? You know what I thought as soon as I read that? Could this possibly be the ward that Joseph spent upwards of two full years in? Catching the irony? I, I don't want to embellish that, so I won't. But could you just wrap your mind around the possibility? It'd make this story a lot more interesting. Make my sermon a lot more interesting. This could be the ward of Potiphar, the very ward that Joseph spent two full years in. And I know that that was because of the accusations against Joseph and the attempted rape against Potiphar, which were inaccurate. But in a very real sense, this narrows its way back and finds its way back to the offenses in Genesis 37. These brothers now sit in the chains that Joseph sat in. We see the rendezvous with trouble, the rendition with Joseph, and then the removal to prison. And before, I want you to write this down. The revelation of their calloused hearts. We've already established that thought a number of weeks ago, but the hearts of Joseph's brothers were calloused. Verse number 21. And they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. If you take notes in your Bible, and if you're one of those people that write in your Bible, I want you to write down two words next to verse number 21. Guilty conscience. Guilty conscience. Although they haven't heard from Joseph in 20 years, they couldn't escape the guilt of their sin. For 20 long years, they lived in fear of what would happen as a result of their wickedness they performed against Joseph. But the moment that they found themselves in prison, they didn't have to wonder why they were where they were. They knew. They knew. They said it. We're here because of what we did to Joseph. Their guilt overcame them. They knew it was because of their sin. And like any annoying older sibling, Matt, like any older annoying sibling, Reuben has to interject. What does Reuben say? Look at verse number 22. And Reuben answered them saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Old self-righteous Reuben. <laughs> Told you so. Nana, nana, boo, boo. I told you so. Guys, I told you that this was going to happen, man. I, I, we talked about this in week number three, but I believe that his intentions were not so pure. A lot of times we, we view, jo- or excuse me, we, we view uh, Reuben as the older brother that's just looking out. I think that Reuben was looking out for himself. 
Reuben was looking out for himself whenever he spared the life of Joseph in that when he goes back and he tells Jacob about his son of promise and how he delivered them, maybe I'll be the son of promise. But now Reuben, I mean, he's crying wolf here. He's saying, hey, look, guys, I told you that this was going to happen, and because of your sins now, we're going to have to pay for it. And while all this conversation is going on, who is listening? Joseph. Verse 23. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake to them by an interpreter. Verse 24. And he turned himself about from them. What does Joseph do? Wept. Joseph couldn't even handle the emotion, so he has to turn aside, and Joseph begins to weep. Why would Joseph be weeping in this situation? I, had to, I don't understand. Joseph, you do realize that you now have the ability and the opportunity to say what everybody loves to say, I told you so? Joseph has the higher ground. Joseph has the authority. Joseph can get revenge. Matter of fact, Joseph can not only get even, he can get over even. Remember, he's second in command in the most powerful empire in all the world, Egypt. But Joseph weeps when he hears of the offenses of his brothers. Why does Joseph weep? I believe it was because of the callousness of their hearts yet still. I want you to understand something. Although they knew that their sins would finally catch up to them, they were not broken about their sin. At least they were not broken to the point like Joseph was broken about their sin. God was, again, peeling back the layers, but their their hearts were still hard. Their hearts were still callous. This was a process of God peeling back the layers, but it wasn't completely peeled back yet. Their hearts were still calloused, and this brought Joseph to the point of tears. We talked about this last week, and we talked about Joseph and Jesus, and the likeness that Joseph has in the Old Testament to the likeness that Jesus Christ has in the New Testament, and we looked at a number of different things, but you know what we didn't look at? We did not look at the the sorrow that Jesus has when his children sin against him. Sorrow. When we sin, we are not just performing acts against the Word of God, we are performing acts against the Son of God. And the Bible says that it breaks Jesus' heart, not just on that side of the cross, but on this side of the cross. Isaiah 53 and verse number three. He is despised and rejected of man, or men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I understand that this is a prophetic verse, and it's referencing the coming of Jesus Christ, and how he's going to die on the cross to save us from our sins. But Jesus Christ did not just die for the sins that you performed before you were a Christian, he died for the sins you were performed after you got saved. So every time that we offend God, every time that we offend the Son of God on this side of the cross, those were the sins that Jesus died for. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was broken. Listen, even when we are not broken by our sin, Jesus is. Repentance cannot take place. Mending cannot take place. Listen, this revelation cannot take place in the lives of the brothers of Joseph until they break like Joseph broke. They can't come to the end of themselves until they've been broken. So what happens? Let's continue. What happens? Well, Simeon is unlucky. That's what happens. Simeon is very unlucky. For whatever reason, Joseph picks out Simeon, and he says in verse number 24, and he returned himself, excuse me, he turned himself away from them and wept, and he returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail next week, but Joseph begins to set the pieces in place for a test that he wants his brothers to go through. He wants to make sure that true, genuine change has taken place. So he hears them, and they're telling them of this brother that has not. That's Joseph. But then he tells them that he tells them that they tell Joseph about this brother who is with their father still. He's talking about Benjamin. And so he tells them, okay, you're going to go. You're going to go back to Canaan, and you're going to, I'm going to keep Simeon here with me in the ward. I'm going to keep him in prison. And you're going to bring back to me your son, your youngest brother, Benjamin, and we're going to exchange. You're going to give me Benjamin, and I'm going to give you Simeon. But if you don't come back, I hope Simeon doesn't owe you any money because you're never going to see Simeon ever again. We see the rendezvous with trouble, the rendition with Joseph, the removal to prison, and the revelation of their calloused hearts. Number five, write this down. The response of kindness. By who? Joseph. Joseph responds kindly 
Look at verse number 25. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money unto his sack and to give them provision for the way, and thus he did unto them. Not the response you'd expect from someone who had been done wrong like Joseph was done wrong. Again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but Joseph has the higher ground at this point. Joseph could have his way. He could do whatever he wants, but rather he provides them with provision for their journey back to Canaan. That yells and screams Jesus Christ. Another type of Christ right there in Genesis 42 and verse number 25 in that we deserve, we deserve to be punished we deserve, and God does not just need to get even with us. He deserves great righteousness and to get over even with us. But I think of a five-letter word, and it's a favorite word of every Christian. It starts with the letter G. Say it with me. Grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. These brothers that despised Joseph and performed these wicked acts against him, they should have had it coming. Matter of fact, the man inside of me is frustrated because I wanted him to just give it to him. You know what I'm saying? We've talked about this, and I hope that you've been faithful to apply this habit, but when we go through the life of Joseph, I've asked, I've asked you to do this. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Look at, your, look at Joseph's situations through the lens of your glasses, and I want you to think about how you would respond to what Joseph has been dealt with. In regards to this situation, I don't know about you, but I know exactly what Lamar Ard would have done. An eye for an eye. I'm getting even. I'm going to administer more pain. Man, they've caused me so much drama. They've caused me so much problem, so much pain for the past 20 years. I've had to deal with the ramifications of their sin against me. If it's Lamar Art, I'm getting even. That's how most of us would respond. Let me ask you a, a more important question. How does God respond to us? Uh-oh. When we sin against God, again, when we make direct assault on God's holiness and his son, how does he respond to us? Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse number 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgments of God, or despisest thou the rich, uh, excuse me, the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the chastisement of God leadeth thee to repentance. Not knowing that the uh, chastening of God leadeth to repentance. Not knowing that the chastening or the, or the troubles of God leadeth to repentance. That's not what that verse says. What does it say? Not knowing that the goodness, huh, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's not what I would expect that verse to say. I would expect for it to say exactly what I referenced. I would expect for it to say, it's going to be through trial and tribulation and chastening and chastisement that you're going to come back into fellowship with God. And guess what? Sometimes that's what takes place. But this verse says, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been living in sin and still got to live off of the goodness of God? How many of you have ever been blessed while living in sin and still got to reap the benefits and the blessings of God? That's why we cannot use blessings from God and that's why we cannot use the goodness of God as a metric to measure whether or not we're walking circumspectly to his will. Because it rains on the just and the unjust. Finish the statement. God is good and all the time. But why does God display his goodness to us even when we sin? What's the verse say? Knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Repentance is the end game for the goodness of God. That's his purpose. That's why he brings goodness upon us, not just chastisement and not just chastening. He brings goodness upon us because he wants us to return unto him. Why did Joseph display this kindness and goodness to the brothers of whom caused him pain and agony? Here it is. He wanted them to come back to him. Did you see it? He didn't want to scare them off. He wanted them to return. He wanted them to come back to them. Why? He still loved them. We're going to find that out. He still loved them. Proof and positive that, G that Joseph still loved his brothers. They're still alive right now. He gave this provision and he gave this goodness to his brothers that despised and rejected and betrayed him and led to this 20-year progression, downward spiral through the life of Joseph. He did that because he still loved them and he wanted them to come back to him. We see the rendezvous with trouble, the rendition with Joseph, the removal to prison, the revelation of their calloused hearts, the response of kindness. Lastly, number six, write this down. The reminder to examine. <clears throat> we'll be quick. The reminder to examine. This passage teaches us two things. It teaches us two things that we ought to know about sin. We'll go over them quickly. Number one, letter A, rather. Regret 
is no substitute for repentance. Regret is no substitute for repentance. These brothers spent 20 long years feeling guilty. They felt bad. They were full of regret for what they did to Joseph, but no true change took place. Why? True repentance had never taken place. True repentance had never taken place. They felt bad about where they were, not bad about what they did. Did you catch that difference? They felt bad about the ramifications of their sin now that they're having to suffer, not about the sin itself and what it did to Joseph. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 9. 1 Corinthians, Paul gives the letter of a lifetime to the church at Corinth. And uh, he, I mean, he just he whips them back and forth. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 7 and verse number 9. He says, Now I rejoice. Not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh what? The sorrow of the world worketh death. What's worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is when you get caught having to suffer the ramifications and being sorry for what it's going to cost you, whereas godly sorrow is worried and being consumed and being sorrowful with what you have done to your precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Worldly sorrow breeds regret. But godly sorrow gleans repentance, and repentance gleans change. I'll say that again. Worldly sorrow breeds regret. You're going to feel bad. If you have worldly sorrow, you're going to feel bad about what your sin will cost you. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow gleans repentance and true change. We like that word, change. We want to be conformed into his image. We want to be changed. How do we change? True repentance. Regret is no substitute for repentance. Let her be write this down. There is a difference between forgetting and forgiving. There is a difference between forgetting and forgiving. When given the opportunity to get the revenge of a lifetime that we all wanted Joseph to do, How did Joseph have the ability to administer grace in the place of pain to those who caused him agony? We didn't get to go over this last week. I want you to turn to Genesis 41, verse 50. And as you turn there, Genesis chapter number 41, we talked about Joseph and the likeness of Jesus. And remember Joseph's name that was given to him by uh, Potiphar, or excuse me, by Pharaoh? Zaphnaphpaneah. I got it right. I memorized it. Zaphnaphpaneah, you know what that means? Savior of the world. Angel of the Lord appeared unto Mary and he said, you're going to call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Savior of the world. We looked at the name, the new name that Joseph was given, but we also looked at the bride, the foreign bride that Joseph was given by Pharaoh. Those of you who weren't here last week, I don't want to go too far into this, but the foreign bride is a picture of the New Testament church. He came into his own and his own received him not, therefore he extends the brideship to those who are of Gentile descent. That's you, that's me. We are living in a a product of Christ's foreign brideship. He gives him this bride, and I want you to look at verse number 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bare unto him, verse 51. We read of Joseph's first son. His second son was Ephraim. Ephraim means uh, uh, God hath given in my, the land of mine affliction. But look at verse number 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, he said, hath made me forget all my toil, and on my father's house. In other words, I've gotten to this position where I'm at because of the sovereign hand of God in spite of what my brothers have done to me. God gave me this vision when I was 17 years old and I am now standing upon the provisions of God and he has done exactly what he said he's gonna do in my life in spite of the adversary, in spite of what they tried to do to me. Therefore, I'm not gonna let Satan steal my joy. I'm going to live in the abundant blessings of God in the provision that he's given to me. He did exactly what he said he's gonna do. Therefore, I have to do something. I have to forgive, I have to forget. I have to let it go. Listen to this. You cannot forget without forgiving. Excuse me, you can forget without forgiving, but you cannot forgive without forgetting. I'll read it really slow again because it's confusing. It's a play on words. 
You cannot forget, excuse me, you can forget without forgiving, but you cannot forgive without forgetting. Although Joseph wasn't ready to allow his brothers back into his life without making sure that true change and repentance had taken place or at least would take place, you know what we don't find Joseph doing? Holding the offenses of those who did him wrong above their heads. There's no room for that. I don't have time for that. The things that God is trying to accomplish in my life are far too great for me to deter from God's plan because of bitterness and because of the fact that I cannot forget about the offenses of others. Why was that? Joseph was able to forgive, but he was also able to forget. In closing, we understand that God had big plans for the sons of Jacob. But we cannot, uh, excuse me, but he cannot do what he wants to do until they come to the end of themselves. Because God is sovereign, he will use whatever means necessary to accomplish his will in their lives. And we're going to see next week that they finally, eventually, they got the picture. Christian, I want you to listen. God wants to use you. I should have had a lot of amens there. God wants to use you. The reality that God wants to use you, I'm talking about a perfect and a righteous and almighty God wants to use someone as sinful and wretched and as wicked as I ought to bring us to our knees in humility. But God cannot use us until we are emptied of self. God cannot fill a vessel that is already full. And because he is sovereign, he will, get whatever mean, he will use whatever means necessary to get us back on track, to gain our attention and get us back in fellowship with him. Why? He wants to accomplish his will through us, and he will. You'll either be an example of what to do for God or what not to do. And as I progress through this passage this week, and in light of the message that pastor's going to preach this Sunday, the theme is all in for him, I begin to study, and I'm, I don't want to steal Pastor Thunder, he's going to preach on it this Sunday, but I ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? I don't care. I'm not talking about as a music director, as a staff member. I'm a member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church, Brother Chip's a member, pastor's a member as well. And I, I looked at it through the lens of what can I do to contribute to my church? How can I be all in for him? And the Lord gave me this in regards to what we just went over. Hunter I, Lamar, I cannot use you. I cannot fill you with my spirit until you are emptied of self. You cannot be all in for him until you are all out of self. If we're going to be all in for him, we're going to have to be all out of self. We're going to have to come to the end of ourselves so that we can be filled with the spirit of God and be all in for him. Then and only then can God accomplish his desired will through us. So why don't we make it easy on him and humble ourselves before he has to humble us? I'll close with the words of Paul, and, and we all know it. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what Paul is saying to connect it to our theme? I want to be all in for him, but Paul's going to have to die. In order for me to be all in for him, I have to be absent of self. And only then can, it says, I'm alive in him. I'm crucified with Christ every yet I, li I live, yet not I, but Christ, what, liveth within me. God cannot indwell you. He cannot fill you with his spirit if you are full of self. You have to empty yourself. So let's come to the end of selves, end of ourselves, so that we can be filled with his spirit. Ultimately, as a church and as Christians, as followers of God, we can be all in for him. That's only gonna come when we empty ourselves of ourselves. So let's do that. We're gonna have an invitation tonight. We won't go into our regular prayer time. So would you stand with me? We'll have just a brief moment of invitation. And if the Lord's spoken to your heart, you can come forward and you can deal with the Lord. Maybe you ought to just come, you ought to ask the Lord to help you be all in for him and to empty yourself of yourself so that you can be utilized by God.